good morning. Um, my name is Ken Thompson. Most of you probably know me, but for those of you who don't, I'm an elder here at uh, Coram Dale. <clears throat> As you can tell, my throat is a little bad today, but I'm praying by the grace of God, he gives me he gives me a voice for the for the sermon. Pastor Rory is at an association meeting this week, so so I'll be bringing the message. I've been in Genesis for quite a while now, and today we wrap up our ser- our series on Genesis one to eleven. And again, it's important that we read scripture right from the beginning because we need to know what the Bible says about our beginnings. Because the evolutionary teachings of the world are diametrically opposed to God's word. We study Genesis because the problems of today's world go back to Genesis. We look around the world and we see a world of struggle. Why does the world have no peace? Because there's no peace in the human heart. There's no peace in the human heart because we have rejected the Prince of Peace. We see this in John chapter 3. First, we'll look at the beautiful John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's a wonderful verse. But then we see, we see the problem just three verses later. John 3, 19. And this is judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds or their works were evil. We just see this in the world. We see the fruits of this. We look at Hosea 4. And he talks about a world where there's no knowledge of God. A world that existed then and a world that exists now. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord is a controversy for them with the inhabitants of the land. <clears throat> there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And that's a picture of a world where there's no knowledge of God in the land. And sadly, that's 
the state of our world today. So we see a lot of bad news. But but we're going to see also, as the sermon goes on, the wonderful good news of God's perfect plan of redemption. Because God does have a plan. It's not going to be bad news forever. And we'll see that as we go through this. <clears throat> this message will be in three segments. Number one will be the disbursement of mankind after the Tower of Babel. Number two will be the fallacy of man's supposed evolutionary ages. Number three is why we need to study Genesis 1 to 11 as it is written and not as the world would have us read it. Now the reason we're here is because we're in Genesis 1 to 11 and this, this is how Genesis 1 to 11 sums up with, uh, with the disbursement of mankind throughout the world. And from a quick reading, this will look like a bunch of people randomly dispersing throughout the world. But nothing could be further from the truth. We see God's sovereign plan of this in Scripture as people spread out after Babel. First, we look how God creates boundaries. We think we're free to go anywhere we want and do whatever we want, but we're not. God has boundaries for us. First, we look at Acts 17, 24 to 26. This is Paul speaking in Athens to the philosophers there. But in the, in the middle of this sermon, it's quite long. You can read it in Acts 17, 22, probably right to the end. It's a wonderful sermon. But I'm just going to take a little bit here. Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's determined our periods, how long we get, and he's determined our dwelling places. Another, it says it again in Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, and that goes back to Genesis. At the Tower of Babel, people had decided that they were going to be gods in their own, and they built a tower to heaven. And God said, no, you're not gods. And he divided mankind by confusing their languages. And that's when the disbursement went out. 
And it says here, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So he fixed the borders. Again, we see the same language as 17. You may think you're here by accident today, but you're not. You're here because it's God's will. We dwell where God wills us to dwell. We think we control our kingdoms, but we don't. We're not in control of our kingdoms. <clears throat> so now we're just going to go in Genesis 10. We're going to see we're going to see how we got here. So let's look at Genesis 10. And he talks about the nations. <clears throat> in Genesis 10, we see that all nations are descended from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Just from these genealogies, we can trace most of the people groups on earth, if not all. And many of these names are still around in the New Testament writings, and many appear today with only slight variations. So we know this wasn't that long ago because the names are even still there. We can only look at an overview. This is not an intense study <clears throat> on Genesis 10. It's just an overview. There's many good studies out there. Answers in Genesis and creation.com. Many others. If you want to really go in and search this, it's, it's all there. But we're just going to look at what the Bible says. And so look at and it explains where each of the sons of Noah spread out. So, so let's begin where the Bible begins with the sons of Japheth. And we start with Gomer. Now Gomer, we know from other places in the Bible as well, but they were an ancient, the ancient Jews called them the Cimmerians. And in, they lived in the area of the Black Sea, probably where our word Crimea comes from. And then we see Magog. We see that later in scripture as well. <clears throat> Magog is associated in the Bible with Tubal and Meshach, two other names of the sons. Tubal is probably modern-day Tobolsk in Russia on the Tubal River. Meshach would have become the Muscovy of Middle Ages, what was the name for Russia, eventually became Moscow. We can see this as a general area where these people went because even one one son of the name of Japheth, or of Gomer, sorry, was called Askenaz. And Askenaz is closely related with the area around Germany. <clears throat> German Jews to this day are still called Askenazi Jews. So we can see these areas. Then we come to Madai, another son of Japheth. And Madai 
would have become Medi, the Medes, where the Medes came from. And the Medes were who conquered Babylon when Belshazzar sinned. Next name we look at is Javan. And Javan comes from, a, it, it's the, uh, it's Greek, which means, uh, basically means Ionia. And it's translated Greece in the Bible. The names are interchangeable. It can be Javan or Greece. Then we look at Tyras, probably became Thrace. And um, the Thracians were Eastern European, Bulgaria, the Balkans, Northern Macedonia. It was part of the Roman Empire. The reason we're looking at this is just to show that unlike the evolutionary theory that says millions of years ago, ape-like creatures became eventually human, this, 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 is, this is just the history of the world we're not going to dwell on it, but it's just, there it is. It's easy. We look at the sons of Gomer. We already saw Askenaz, but we see Riphath and Togermah, and they're closely related with the area around Germany, too. The sons of Javan, first of all, we see Elisha, and many Scholars see that Elisha became Helisha, where the, the word Hellenists come from, and we see the Hellenists prominently in Scripture. Next, one of the, the sons of um, Javan is named Tarshish. That's in uh, Genesis 10, 4. Tarshish we see, of course, from Jonah. Tarshish is where Jonah fled to instead of going to Nineveh, like God had told him. So there's a name. Kittim is another name of sons of Javan or Javan. Usually translated Cyprus. Then we come to Dodinum. And we see that again in, in First Chronicles 1-7 in the chronology there. He is now called Rodenum and probably became Rhodes. You notice that when we take a biblical worldview that these things all fit together. And again, we're not going to dwell on this. I, I'm just showing you that when we put everything into a biblical context, we see exactly what we actually see in the world today. We need a biblical worldview. The next we're going to look at the sons of Ham in Genesis 10, 6. We see Cush. This is the area around Ethiopia. And in Genesis 10, 7, we see Sheba was one of the sons of Cush. And we see Sheba 
Again, the queen of Sheba came to Solomon. And Jesus also mentions her as the queen of the south in, in Matthew 12, 42. Um, so now we go down. We see Mizraim. It calls it, um, it, it Egypt here. But the actual word in Hebrew is Mizraim. And they're interchangeable. So Mizraim became Egypt. A put is the area around Libya. And then we see Canaan. So, so for Canaan, we see in Genesis 10, 15 to 17, so Canaan fathered Sidon. Well, we know where Sidon is. That's a, that's a city to this day. And Heth, which became the Hethites or the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Arkites, and the Sinites. Well, we see all these people when Israel conquered the land. They were the Canaanite people. So it's really not hard to not hard to see this. The next we see here, and lastly, is the sons of Shem. It's in uh, Genesis 10, 22. So the so Shem, the Shemites became the Semites. First was Elam. Elam was a kingdom in Abraham's day. In fact, they were the ones who kidnapped Lot and Abraham had to go and uh, rescue him from there. Then we see Asher, which is probably where we get the name Assyria from. Then we see a name, Arpachshad. And we need to go a little further into this name because in Genesis 11, beginning in 10, it shows that our Paxad was in the lineage to Abraham or to Abraham, as he was called here. But we see him also in Luke. 336, he's in the direct lineage of Christ, our Paxad. So that's the that's the Semite version, or the Semite line that led to Abraham and the children of Israel. And then Lud is another name. We see that throughout scripture, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Aram is the next name where we get the Arameans and Israel had many dealings with him. So we see the Jews were not the only Semitic people. In fact, Israel was constantly at war with other Semitic people. So that'll be, that'll be the disbursement of the people. Now we're going to look at the fallacy of the supposed evolutionary ages. 
particularly the Stone Age, but also the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Now, every time evolutionists see stone tools, they assume subhuman without the intelligence to produce more modern tools. But look, let's look at what really we find. We know from Genesis that people were never subpar in intelligence. We see that by reading Genesis. We see this when archaeologists take a closer look at these stone tools. We see mortals and mortars and pestles and knives, arrows, spears. And these show a high degree of tool making and a knowledge of aerodynamics. <clears throat> these people were not lacking intelligence, but they were only lacking materials. One commentator says that these supposed ages tell us more about trade routes than they do about evolution. Abraham lived only 10 generations after Noah. So to try to fit millions of years in there is impossible and actually foolish. So after the confusion of language, just imagine what would have happened. People couldn't speak to themselves. It, it would have been utter confusion. People would have spread out. And we see that in archaeology, first along the Fertile Crescent, and then into the more report, re remote parts in harsher environments. These people would have had less advanced tools and clothing and material. And that's where they like to, evolutionists like to call these people Neanderthals or what, but they were never subpar people. They were just lacking things. We can tell that they were highly intelligent because of the way they buried their dead. There was elaborate burial ceremonies, and that is not subpar humans. We also see that these, over, these ages overlapped. We see that in Job, which is one of the oldest books of the Bible, Job 19.24, Job says that, oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a book. And he talks about the book up in 23. He says, oh, that my words were written in a book. So they had iron way back in the time of Job, which is a thousand years before iron was supposed to be, be before people learned how to smelt iron. We also look in Job 20, 24. It says, he will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. So we see that in the time of Job, <clears throat> the Iron Age and the Bronze Age are running concurrently. Well, in the northern areas, they were still dealing with the effects of an ice age. Probably were living in what was we would call probably closer to the Stone Age. But these are not millions of years. These are not long periods of time. 
these were a brief period of time. As soon as the people living in the Stone Age learned, um, began to develop trade routes and, and found minerals, then they became more advanced. It's not because people were subpar and did not know the difference between stone and bronze and iron. It's just the availability of them. So my last point is, why do we study Genesis? So far, it's probably been pretty dry. <laughs> but we do need to study Genesis as it is written. In fact, we need to study the whole Bible as it's written. The first reason is that when, when we take the word of scripture and begin to introduce human philosophy into it, we miss the whole point of what God is trying to say, that God is sovereign over his creation. We see that in Matthew 10, 29. It says that not a, not a single sparrow falls to earth apart from the will of the Father. But we don't want a sovereign God. And we, so we introduce these secular philosophies, human philosophies. So we take God from his high and perfect place that we see in scripture. And we begin to elevate ourselves. And we begin to recreate God in our own image. But the problem is that this is a fallen image. So we need to give God his rightful place. We need to give God sovereignty over ourselves. And it's hard to do. But if the world would do it, we wouldn't be in this state. The next problem with letting evolutionary beliefs into our thinking is that if we don't believe in the first Adam, if we don't believe that the first Adam brought sin and death into the world, how are we going to believe that the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, is going to remove sin from the world? That's why it's so important that we believe the Bible as it is written. Anything that hinders us from coming to repentance at the cross is deadly. So that is why this church will always preach the Bible as it is written. I don't care if it conflicts with whatever thought is out there. We stand on the word of God. I just want to, my last point here also includes just one more thing here. Many times we live like having the right doctrine and truth is all there is. 
if we know the right doctrine, then we're there. And if we know the truth, then we're there. But this is not all there is. In fact, knowing the truth, having the right doctrine, which we learn in Scripture, is only the beginning. That's just where we begin. We don't end there. The message of the Bible is ultimately about love. And many times I think we, we forget that. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was in Matthew 22, It says here, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the standard. There's no use reading the rest, the law and the prophets until we understand this because it'll do us no good. Really, I get out of this, there's only two questions that are going to be asked on Judgment Day. One is, did you love me? And he already knows the answer. And two did you love the people I put in your path? And he knows the answer to that too. And he says here on <clears throat> these two commandments depend on all the law and the prophets. So if we don't get these two questions right, then we don't get anything right. I want to read a, just a quick passage from 1 Corinthians 13. I know God has been convicting me of this. That, that the message we need to bring to people is the message of Christ's love to us. First Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, 
and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And I know myself, there's times when I haven't been gracious. And that was not true of me. And it is convicting because Jesus called it what everything is summed up in. Love for God. Love for your neighbor. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, he talks about how we need to witness to others. I'll just read it and then we're going to break it apart a little bit. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps, may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So as we go out in this world, it's easy to be angry with people. But if we break this passage down a bit, we, we better be careful. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So let's look at that first. The Lord's servant. So who is the Lord's servant? Now, many people would say, well, the Lord's servant talking about here is, is the pastor and the elders and the leaders of the church. But, but who is the Lord's servant? Are you the Lord's servant? I would say, yes, we're, we're all the Lord's servant. This is us. This is all of us. And this is how we need to approach witnessing into a dying world that is hostile to the gospel. It says, but kind to everyone, able to teach. Now many people think, okay, well that means the same thing as 1 Timothy 3 when it was a office of overseer that is it must be able to teach. But this isn't an office he's talking about here. This is God's servant. And so, we all teach. We teach our families. We teach our children. We teach whoever we come across. We just tell them about Jesus. That's able to teach. So this is, this is all of us. Patiently enduring evil. And in the NASB, it says, patience, patient when wronged. Now, that's a tough one because patience is one thing, but patience when somebody wrongs us, usually 
That's where a patience disappears. I, I know myself, I can be guilty of this. But we need to be patient. Correcting opponents with gentleness. You notice how all the words are not quarrelsome. Be kind. Correct your opponents with gentleness. You know, why do we need to correct our opponents with gentleness? Normally, our first thought is to correct our opponents with sternly. The problem is most of our opponents that we're going to be witnessing to, that's the only life they've ever known is anger and hatred. So if, if we approach that way, we're not, doing a dis, we're not doing a service, we're doing a disservice because that's what the world expects that the world will tell them, judgmental. But we need to come in kindness. I, I heard a pastor speak one, well not speak, I read, I read about him. He, um, he was um, thrown in prison in the Middle East, one of the Arab countries. For, um, for preaching the gospel. And he was in a cell, a great big huge cell, with about 20 other people, and he, all Muslim. And he was a Christian, and he was treated like dirt. He had to eat last after everybody else ate. <clears throat> He had to stand behind everybody. He could never be in front of anybody. He had to be behind. He had to be in the back. He had to be very humiliating. And, and these people were arrogant and angry at him. And, uh, but he said, he said at night, when, when all these, whenever, when they thought everybody was asleep and wasn't listening, he said, he heard people sobbing. And especially younger ones, but, but really every, everyone, they had no hope. And they, they sobbed at night. I'm just wondering how many people that maybe treat us <clears throat> that same way. Anger, hostility. And then we resent that and we take some of this anger and hatred with us away. But I wonder how many of those people, if you actually heard <clears throat> at night on their, on their bed, I wonder if you would hear sobbing. And that's why 
That's why this scripture here tells us don't respond angrily to anger. Jesus said respond in kindness. Pray for your enemies. Because we were all at one time enemies of God. The Bible clearly states that. And I know myself that I need to preach this to myself many times before I can ever come and bring it to you because I'm not there. This, this is tough and it's convicting. But it's the way God works. And we see here what happens when we do this. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captive, captured by him to do his will. God, you notice your God is sovereign in this? That God may grant them repentance? <clears throat> but you also notice that he uses us in this in a way that we don't even really understand. Through our words, through our kind words, through our preaching, through our correcting, God may grant them repentance. And it's, it, this is not like a lot of the preaching that's being done today. It's judgmental. But I just wonder if we got back to the Bible, the way that God tells us what to do, if we would see a difference. <clears throat> Remember that people are souls created in the image of God. And the battle is not a nursery battle. The reason we see it sometimes as an earthly battle and think it's an earthly battle is because that's what we see. We see the plane of earth. But in Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about the armor of God, he tells us that the battle is not flesh and blood. The battle is in the darkness, in the spiritual realms. It's a spiritual battle we fight. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, it said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of, they are of divine power for the pulling down of strongholds. And we, we have to realize that the battle is a spiritual battle. I'm just going to leave you with one last, last story here. I, I, I saw a sermon. I actually saw him speak. He was a missionary, and he was, um, he was a missionary in North Africa. And it was, it was such a closed country that he couldn't even say the name of the place he was or even the, his name. But... <clears throat> He said one time he was 
on his way to a Christian conference in that area. And he had to fly through a connecting hub in an Arab country. And so his plane landed. And they, of course, they took him aside they, they, and put him in a room and they interrogated him. And what are you doing? Well, I'm attending a Christian conference. And he's not lying. And, and he said, uh, <clears throat> he said what they did is, they said, okay, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to look at your credentials. We're going to have to look more and more into this. And um, <clears throat> and he said, it was getting long, long and long. He had a connection and finally it got too late and the connection was missed. The plane had to go. <clears throat> but as soon as the plane left, they walked into the room and said, okay, you're free to go. <clears throat> but, um, but he said, he just felt anger. And he said, he's, he was walking out and he said, this person does not deserve your grace. And <clears throat> the word came back, do you? And we have to realize that none of us deserve this. <clears throat> we don't deserve this. That's why we need to look at people as souls who are in need of a savior. So I'll, I'll just all I can say is that let's make sure that we're fighting with the right weapons on the right battlefield. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing these things to us and convicting us of these things. Help us to be growing, Lord, into your image, the image of Christ. Just pray that we can take this message of salvation into the world. <clears throat> but help us fight the right fight. With the right weapons. Relying on you, Lord, because ultimately you are sovereign in all this. All we do is bring the food to the table. Help us to realize that too. We don't change anyone. It's not from our superiority of speech or wisdom, but it's from your superiority of speech and wisdom in your word. And I just thank you, Lord, for 
the people of this congregation. And I just pray that we we see higher purpose in everything we do. And I just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.